This morning, as it's Palm Sunday, we're going to be in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. The title of the message is, Blessed is the King of Israel. You know, when presidents, kings, other people we deem to be important come to town, we roll out the red carpet for them. We probably used to actually roll out a red carpet at movie premieres or hotels or things. Um, but now it's more ceremonial. Uh, a president will have a motorcade. He'll have, uh, if he travels uh, into another country, they'll have escorts from their police. They'll have escorts from their own Secret Service, the military will be flying around. When they come in, everyone is prepared. Everyone is ready. Uh, when you go to greet the king or the queen in certain countries, there's customs, there's things you should do or shouldn't do, should say, shouldn't say. Everyone's waiting and ready for them to come out. As today is my seventh anniversary with my wife of our wedding, we rolled out the red carpet for her. <laughs> everyone lines up, gets ready, Stands out there, looks their nicest, smells their freshest. They lay out flowers, the flower girl, and you, you roll out this, some people roll out this white train for the, the bride to walk on. And then, up oh, the music changes, and out comes the bride. And Pop Pop walked you out. <laughs> and we were all ready. And we do this for people that have value, or things that we have ascribed value to. I think sometimes even in our personal lives, when friends come over, people come over, at least the first few times, we clean up the house like never before <laughs> because we want to put out our best for them. We want to put out the best for them to know that it's important that when they come over, we care if they're comfortable or not. But after a while, they're going in our fridge, they come over, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> we all just lounge around and put our feet up. Sometimes do we put out the fanciest things just to get their attention, just to put out the nicest china, or we put on our nice clothes that they might look at us and think something of us when they don't realize this is our only suit or our only dress. Sometimes we put it out because they deserve it or we care for them. At work, before a client comes in, we prepare, we make sure that especially for like a, a long meeting or a pitch or something where we're trying to win their business, we'll go pull out all the stops and make sure that the client is comfortable and feels welcomed. Put up a sign, get food, they give them a tour of the office and things of that nature. And there's nothing really wrong with that. That's not the point of bringing it up, but I wonder sometimes why do we do these things for people? Is it always a selfless motive? And I think you know, in business, it's obvious it's not a selfless motive. You're doing business. So you want to do business with them. You want them to like you. You want them to give them, give you their money <laughs> and vice versa. Uh, you know, will they buy things from us? Will we benefit in some way from doing this for somebody? We tend to flatter people. And flattery can be tricky. Flattery is not always trustworthy. A lot of times someone will flatter you. Maybe the things they say are true, but the reason why they say it is perhaps to get you to, to go along with them on something. But since this is church, and since hopefully we're Christians, what is our motive when we worship God? 
Do we roll out the red carpet for him? Do we put on our Sunday best? And I get that. I get the idea of wanting to dress up nice for church. This is about as nice as I get. I even put on my shoes instead of boots today because it was Palm Sunday. <laughs> and they're sneakers. But it's important that we treat God with respect. But in the same sense, he wants us to be real with him. And if our real is a suit, or if our real is the rags that we own, he just wants us. He doesn't want the facade. And when we worship, let's consider our motives and our emotions. Are they selfish? Are we looking to get something out of it? And in some sense, we should. When we come to worship God, we should expect to meet with God. We should expect to be blessed by Him and touched by Him and leave feeling a different way than we went in. And not on the basis of feeling alone. A lot of Christianity is about that, where it's all about the pomp and circumstance. It's all about the flashy lights and the smoke and the good-looking people and the fancy clothes that they wear and the trends that they follow. And we might feel good afterwards, but to be honest with you, I wasn't feeling good this morning coming into worship. There's a lot of things I hear about, I know about going on. There's a lot of things that just in my life I go, man, am I really doing this for the right reason? Should I even be doing this? And I just have to keep turning to God and His Word. But it wasn't until the last song that my feelings changed. And I'll tell you why my feelings changed. Not because I enjoyed the song so much. I did. But because in that time, Jesus spoke to me. And I felt His touch. And He comforted me and encouraged me. And took the burden away that I had. Truthfully, it probably could have been any song. But I just sensed all morning that we needed to sing Hosanna. Even if the style isn't my favorite and I'm not the biggest fan of the group that performs it. But I knew that this morning on Palm Sunday we needed to worship him with that song. And when we come to worship, are we truly laying something down? What are we laying down, if anything? Well, maybe you just laid down your Sunday morning to come to church, and that's fantastic. That's a great start. And we need to lay these things down whether we feel them or not. If I had waited for the right feeling to come upon me, I probably would have stayed at home this morning. Said, oh, no one might come. What are we doing here? Let me just stay home. But I know this is what God has for us in this season. So I lay down my emotions, my feelings. Because I have to, really, as being God's son and servant and friend. I don't have a choice in the matter. And I'm thankful for that. Because if I had a choice in the matter, uh, I'd probably be doing something worthless. But before we get to the events of Palm Sunday, which is what we're going to read about this morning. We have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? And why would they be worshiping him like this? Well, the Bible in John 1, 1 through 5 and 16 through 18 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life 
was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That this man that we're going to see that rides in on a donkey, I'm not giving any spoilers away, I think we all know the triumphal entry. But he really is God in the flesh. The Word became a man. He's a living Word of God. He's alive. And he was alive. He's the creator of everything that this man, who we're going to look at today, created everything. We try and ascribe creation to chance and a big bang and nothingness, something out of nothing, by nothing. Something out of nothing seems impossible, but it's not impossible because God does it and God did it. And this man who a week from now they would kill and murder and crucify. He's the only one who has power over death and hell. We tend to think and give credit to the the enemy that somehow he's got power over hell. No, hell is his destination too. Hell is not his party, his kingdom. It's his end. Psalm 124.8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth that this man, Jesus, is Lord of all. And Lord, this morning, we do pray that you would show us that you are the Lord of all. And part of that comes in us just simply believing. And God, that belief doesn't come blindly. It's because of reality. In fact, we believe as you begin to open our eyes to that reality that we don't believe when we are blind. But God, when you open our eyes, we can't help but see that you are the creator of everything. We love you, God. Touch us this morning, we pray. And ask that, God, we would lift you up. God, give you everything that you deserve. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Speak in your word. Amen. So let's read John chapter 12. And we're not going to start with the triumphal entry. We're actually going to start in the beginning in verse 1 about the anointing at Bethany, because I believe it highlights a few things. If we had time, I would probably go back even further, but we'll get to that. John 12, verse 1 says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, that's the city, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus was one of his best friends. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then he said, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. You know, Jesus knew that his death was coming, and it was in everything he said and did and allowed. 
and others knew it, whether Mary knew it or not, that this thing she was doing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, and by her love and affection for her Creator, was a symbol of what was coming and was her, in effect, anointing Him for His death to come. But why would I read this? Why would we go back and not to start in verse 12 about the triumphal entry? That's what today is, Palm Sunday. Well, I think at least in this Gospel of John, we can look at the other Gospels and get some other stories that happen. It's interesting to see what happens right before that. It's interesting to see why these people throng to him and worship him. And in fact, it goes back a little bit further. But this was six days before the Passover, six days before he would be crucified. It says that Lazarus, who had been dead, in the previous chapter, we see that Lazarus was dead, that he was very sick. Jesus and his disciples were elsewhere. They were a few days away. They waited a few days, and then they came. His sisters, Mary and Martha, were very upset that Jesus didn't show up and, and heal him. But Jesus had a bigger plan for this. And we actually get the shortest verse in the Bible and one of the most powerful in the previous chapters. It says that Jesus wept when he saw that his friend was dead in the grave, that his family was upset. He wept. He was brokenhearted for his friend. And in turn, he called, tells Lazarus to come forth, to come back from the dead. And Lazarus comes out all wrapped up, probably needs a shower, but they get him changed and they sit down and they eat. And this is a little while after that. But this man, Lazarus, who was dead, was not dead anymore. He was eating dinner with Jesus, with his friend. We know that Jesus also, before he rides into the city, and other times, he says that he weeps over Jerusalem. That he's anguished over the state of the people there. That even though he is there, and he's the one they've been looking for, they missed him. Or if they found him, they found him for the wrong reasons. That they might receive bread, or they might receive what they think, as we'll see today, a king, an earthly king. But what a thing to have been raised from the dead. To be known by the guy Lazarus who is dead. Johnny, Jimmy, Ashley who is dead is now not dead. And kind of this Ripley's Believe It or Not when you're eating dinner at McDonald's and people come and look at you. Is he a ghost? Is he really eating that? This guy was dead, you know, kind of poke him and see if he's cold or hot. Does he look a little pale? No, he's fine. He's normal. He's healthy. But what a claim to fame. And I wonder what our claims to fame in life are, what our reputations are about us. Is it based on a testimony or simply a talent? Is it based on the fact that we're really good at something? Or just the fact that we're a freak show because we were dead and we're alive now. And you know, only one of those is going to last for eternity. It says that they made him a supper. And I love this. We love to eat every year on our anniversary. We call it a steak anniversary, and we get steaks and we have a nice dinner together. Uh, and I love it. But they made Jesus a supper and Martha served it. They had this fancy... Um, I don't know how fancy it was, but they had a big meal. 
And Jesus loved to have this meal with them. He loved to spend time with them, to sit down and eat and talk and converse. The one who made it all uh, enjoys eating with them. And I love that Lazarus is there with them. That Lazarus is just like, I'm alive, I'm going to come eat with Jesus. And he was dead, but now he's eating with him. And we think that, man, this uh, Lazarus, I'm sure, had no clue. I wouldn't either. I barely have a clue now. But man, the picture of him, that man, Jesus wept over him being dead, brought him back to life, and now he's sitting at the table and eating with Jesus. And isn't that the story of you and me and the church, that Jesus wept over us and prayed for us that we might come to him? We came to him, and he brought us back to life. Why? Because he called to us. We didn't, we're not saved because we did something other than we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, and we heard him calling our name, and we woke up. And one day we'll be in heaven, feasting with him. But Martha served and Lazarus sat. And again, there's just such an intimacy that I think only comes through experiencing the resurrection. We can know what the Bible says. We can have gone to church our whole lives, been raised in Sunday school and Christian school. But until you've encountered the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your own life, you'll never fabricate it. You'll never... see it. You'll never experience it because that is the true Christian experience is being raised from the dead. And I don't know that Lazarus would want to be anywhere else, sitting versus serving, Mary versus Martha. But when our lives are truly raised from the dead, sitting and fellowshipping with Jesus becomes the most important thing to us more than doing anything for him. And we do, we moved here, we wanted to move here, but we know that God was leading us here. We're here doing this. We enjoy it, and it's fun, and we like it, but sincerely, we're doing it not because we want to earn something with Jesus, but because we know that this is what he wants us to do, and it's a way for us just to spend time with him, just to get to know him better. But he's invited to the table, and you and I are invited to the table to a presidential feast. Wouldn't you rather sit at the table? I mean, maybe you don't like our president or your president. You wouldn't want to go to that feast, but sincerely... What if your favorite movie star, your favorite musician, your favorite whoever invited you to their house or was out having dinner and wanted you to come, would you rather serve the meal or eat the meal next to them? Like a prodigal, we need to understand our failure. Lazarus understands that all he's capable of is dying. But Jesus rose him from the dead. We see here that Mary anoints him with oil of spikenard. Uh, maybe it's a year's worth of salary, if not more. says 300 denarii. So that's a lot. These people weren't rich. And she gives what she had. This was her investment. This was her 401k. This was her CD at the bank. This perfume wasn't something that she wore on nice dates. This was her investment. This is what she had that she could claim. She didn't have gold, but she had spikenard. And the commentary talks about spices and ointments were often used as an investment. Like I said, uh, they were portable. They were easily negotiable in an open market. It's interesting that she also wiped his feet with her hair. You know, she let her, the commentary talks about letting her hair down in public. It was not something that she would do, that she totally let it all out before Jesus in a holy way. Like, man, I don't care what people think about me. 
We see that all throughout Scripture for people who come to the Lord, they stop thinking about what others think about them. And they'll do whatever it takes to show God their love. And it's a personal, intimate thing. There were other people around who could see it, but this was between her and him. And this emotion of love and dependence, of need, of worship of who he is and what he represented. That she had a motive for his burial, whether she totally understood it or not, or at all. But she worshipped him with her finances, her future security, her dignity. None of that mattered to her. Just him. The position she was at his feet. She laid her life down before him. It was humble. She used her hair. The price, it didn't matter to her. She didn't care if she couldn't buy something when she was old with it. She said, I've had this all this time, and this is what it's for. A lot of times we have things in life or relationships in life and we don't realize what they're for because we're so wrapped up in what else could be and we miss out on the friends we have now. She knew the worth of Jesus, that he was priceless. But Judas, well, he was there. He was a disciple. He wasn't on the ground. He goes, what is she doing? You know how expensive that is? You know how many poor people there are out there that don't have clothes and food? We're sitting here eating and she's dumping this out before him. What a waste. Sounds like Judas is the more righteous one. What is this lady doing? Why should, Do you realize how much ministry could be done with what she's doing? She's pouring it out on his feet for five seconds. You know how many people we could feed? Well, it sounded great, but you know what his deep down motive was? Whether he realized it or not, these things were coming out of his heart because he was a thief. Because... If she sold that for $100, he could take $20 out of the pot. But he said that Jesus said, this, this was the day for the day of my burial. It was still a week out, but Jesus knew that this was the time that his burial was coming. His death and his burial was on the way. Jesus knew that this season of his life, even of living, was coming to a close. And we see that feeding just a few people temporarily was no match to the importance of what Jesus was about to do and go through for everyone. That more than our physical hunger and our physical need, our spiritual need was more important. And this lady's spiritual need was worth more to him than feeding the hungry. He knew that he said, hey, you're always going to have hungry people. You're always going to have poor people. Feed them. Take care of them. That's part of the gospel is meeting people's needs, but it's not the primary part of the gospel. The primary need of the gospel is the gospel itself. That Jesus came and he died for our sins and he rose again. Now a great many of the Jews, verse 9, knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. It's interesting that a great many Jews came, uh, came to see Jesus, but also Lazarus. Again, these people are showing up. They're outside the door. They're looking down. Lazarus is in there. This is, I heard about it. I didn't necessarily believe it, but now I see it. That was a spectacle for some people. It was a sign for others. But he was truly the Savior for all. 
that this was a, Jesus did this, that other people might truly see that death was nothing to him, that death was like waking up someone from the sleep. And I have a, a friend who back in the day would fall asleep anywhere, and it was almost impossible to wake him up. You have to push him out of the car, the fire alarm would go off, he, he wouldn't wake up, but uh, let alone couldn't wake him up, let alone bring someone back from the dead. But Jesus just called to him, Lazarus, come forth. And all these people come forth to see. But the chief priests, again, seriously, they want to put Lazarus to death? Did they not get the memo? Did they not think, that well, he raised them once from the dead. That was once. He can't, he's not going to do it again. If we put Lazarus to death, did they not realize that Jesus could have raised him from the dead again and again and again and again and again? The logic here is, is not logic. They're so caught up in their own movement, in their own way of thinking, in their own religion, that they miss the man that their religion was pointing to the whole time. Jesus. And they're upset that people are leaving their influence and turning to Jesus' influence. And they hated the resurrection because it truly showed that God's power is with Jesus and His grace and mercy and not in their own efforts of legalism and pedigree. And there is a real fight against eternal life. When eternal life and resurrected life pops up in our life, when we come to God, there is always an attack. There's a reason why people turn away. There's a reason why we get down and depressed. There's a reason why things start going bad for us or bad things start happening to us. It's because all of hell breaks loose literally in our lives to try and squash the resurrection in us. But it's futile. If we're truly raised from the dead, we can't go back. If you're alive again, you can't just close your eyes, you, you purposely would have to kill yourself to go back to death. And the enemy hates that because he knows he has no more power over us. When death can't hold us down, when sin has no strength in our lives anymore, the enemy gets mad. But don't fear, for the one who is in you is greater than who is in the world. And this resurrection is a window into another universe Entirely, We talk about alternate universes, but the truth is it's all one universe. And behind this world is the spiritual world, and it's a kingdom with no end. It's not bound by earthly human constraints and time and understanding and even death. It's a kingdom of life and life eternal. And it says that Lazarus' resurrection was a reason that many people turned to Jesus. They realized, whoa, this guy's speaking things about God. He has the understanding that the scribes and Pharisees don't have, even from a kid. He's loving. He's gentle. He's patient. He's kind. And he brought someone back from the dead. That's a big deal. And when you see it for what it really is, you can't help but believe. But these Pharisees were so blind, so caught up in their own ideas, their own ideology, that they couldn't see clearly that even when someone was raised from the dead, brought back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And what is going to get us saved? What is going to get, if we're not, and what is going to get people saved around us? It's not a fun atmosphere. It might help. People come to church. It's nice. It's comfortable. The music's good. The pastor's nice. Coffee's tasty. That's great. Maybe they'll come back and maybe they'll feel welcomed and warmed at the dinner table. But it's not going to get them saved. In fact, if we pamper too much, perhaps they'll miss the boat entirely. They won't see their need if we're 
just all these so-called kind words, but we never tell them the truth that they're headed towards hell and that they're dead in their sin and trespass and make them uncomfortable, perhaps they'll never experience resurrection. And at some point they'll say, I don't need all this. I get the same from my country club. It's not being cool about understanding the culture. It's not about being a good person. You know, you can be in the world, but not of it. You might look like the world, but you don't need to be. I know stories of missionaries who came from one part of the country and went to the other, and they were nothing like the culture they entered, and they did a crazy amount of work there. Look up the cross and the switchblade. It's not about being a good person either. There's, we, have, we know plenty of great and good people in this life, people that are even nicer than us. Remember birthdays, send cards, do other things like that. But you know what? If they don't have Jesus, it's nothing. Again, what's their motive? Social justice, feeding the poor. Again, feed the poor, care for the poor, minister to the lost and the hurting and the drug addicted and the depressed. But if you never tell them about Jesus, if you never lead them to the cross, you're wasting your time in theirs. And in fact, you're just paving the way to hell for them. Because it's the resurrected life that saves people, that get people to come around and look. You go, mm, what is that? I want that. And the extent of the resurrection in our own lives is the extent that people will see God. People will not see God. I mean, the Bible talks about do your good works in front of men in some sense that they will glorify your Father in heaven. So we, we don't need to be secret about it. But if those good works are not based on the resurrection, are not an overflow of a life that is born again, it's only going to point people to you. not going to point them to God. And in some sense, it'll make them feel inadequate and unworthy and... Like, well, I'll never be like that, so. I need to see that you would never be like that either if it wasn't for Jesus. Abusing grace and not living a resurrected life only make people think salvation is worthless. This person says this through everything, says they worship God and give them all, but look at what they do with it. Look at how they waste it. Look at how their marriage is. Look what their attitude is. So, this is nothing. I don't want anything to do with that. And I think that's where the church in America has failed the most, is that the world looks on and goes, ugh, I don't believe the Bible. I hate the Bible because you guys claim to be so loving and holy and good, but where's the grace? You take it for granted. You throw it out. You say you live for God first, but you're living for everything but. Living that resurrected life and simply being at the table with Jesus is what's going to bring people into a real encounter with God. Why? Because if we're doing that, it means that we've had a real encounter with God. It means that we're seeking a real encounter with God. And if we're seeking an encounter with God, well, that means that God is going to show up and God is going to be evident. And it has nothing to do with us. We were dead and made alive. And they'll either love Him and follow Him, or they'll hate you and persecute you, all based on where their heart is. And the resurrection... It's truly the basis to believe Jesus. We have all the word of the Bible and it's true, but the resurrection is the crux of it all. If he died for our sins but never came back to life, well, that would be nice. But what promise and what hope does it have? He's not on the cross anymore. He's out of the grave. You want to get a necklace? Don't get one with him on a cross. Get one of an empty tomb. So he healed some people. 
But at the end of the day, if he couldn't bring them back to life, his healing power was limited. He claimed to be God, but if he never came back to life, he wasn't God. Because only God can't stay dead. The resurrection is the reason. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of men the most pitiable. That if our faith in Jesus only extends to the grave, there's no point. Get out now. God bless you. Sell it all and go do something else. Because there's no point. Go be a nihilist. But you know what? His power extends beyond the grave. So sell it all. Abandon it all. And follow him. The Bible makes a lot of bold claims. And I think sometimes in Christianity we try and cover up those bold claims to make it more palatable. But we need to expose those bold claims because you know what? It's so full of them that even if one of them was wrong, you could discount them all. But the fact is they're all so bold and they're all so true. It's not ashamed of making crazy things the bullet points of, of, of belief. Let's go on. Let's read verse 12, uh, verse 12 through 19. And it says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. And for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It says that they took branches of palm trees, and these palm branches are a symbol of Jewish nationalism, apparently since the time of the Maccabees, about 400 years earlier. This was a patriotic rally, in some sense. You know, They were making Jerusalem great again when their king was coming. The crowds looked to Jesus as their political and national savior, and perhaps even in faith from what the scriptures said, but what they had been taught was totally wrong. They had been taught that the Messiah would be a national savior and not the savior of nations. And not a spiritual savior. You know, they laid out the red, white, and blue. They had the flags and the eagles if they were American. But it was also, in a sense, what was common. These things were around them. You know, I, I toot my own horn, but I got flowers for my wife the other day down at Super One, the supermarket. And it was really more, I walked in there, I had to get basil, and I found some basil for her. And as I was going for the next thing, I saw the flowers. I'm like, oh, it's our anniversary. I should probably get her flowers. She'd like that. And I love her. It'd be nice. <laughs> but it wasn't like, I'm going to go out and get my wife flowers today. It was just, oh, there they are on the way. <laughs> You know, oh, thank you for putting them out, these Easter flowers. But, uh, you know, I, I come home and I'm a hero and it's fantastic. <laughs> Kids love them. Wife loves them. That's the same thing here, you know. They just kind of showed up and up. Palm, palm branches. Parvall says that, you know, they put their coats and things down too. But, the, you know, they pick these branches and they put them down before him as a sign of rolling out this green carpet for him. 
There are some probably genuinely worshiping their incoming king. Some probably even understood in the sense that he was their savior, they had power over death. But some just wanted political freedom, and I get that. Political oppression. I mean, we only know very, very, very little amount of it in our culture, if any. But some uh, were probably fickle. In fact, we know that because they turn on him a week later. And there will only be a few people at the cross, and it was the people at the dinner, it wasn't the people here. The crowd is so fickle. The will of the mob, the mob is praising you one day, and they're stringing you up the next you don't give them what they want. And that's why mob rule is so, so dangerous. And political pandering to the mob is national suicide. They All these people cry. They said, save now. Hosanna. Save now. Oh, save. And this heart of adoration, save us, save us. Yes, our king. Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God. You're coming in God's name. You're God's provider. Save us from the Romans. Think about the crowds for famous people when they come to town or musicians. Oh, we love you. You're the best. Woo! We raise our hands at concerts to a country music star. Yeah, he's good at the guitar. and He's got a nice hat. Probably a really nice hat. But should we be pouring our hearts up to him or her? Raising our hands, doing everything we can to get an autograph of somebody. I don't know if there's anything wrong with going to a show and enjoying the time and having an autograph or meeting them backstage or any of that. I have a friend who goes to a lot of Christian concerts and he tells me about the bands that he gets to meet. Now some are truly genuine and others, maybe they're just having a bad day. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, don't we all? But he was riding a donkey here. The other Luke talks about how they got it. This is a symbol of peace and not war. Someone after they've won a war perhaps come in on a donkey, but you know he's coming in in a nice little car, in a golf cart maybe. He's not riding in on a tank on a horse of war. You know, horses coming in are a symbol of conquering or riding in to conquer, and we see that in Revelation with the four horsemen. But a donkey, he came in peace, and you know what? This was his first entry into Jerusalem, but the Bible tells us that there's another one. And Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Wait a minute. Christians should be totally against war. But God is making war against the wicked. Sorry. <laughs> his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He's righteous, right? He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, who are those armies? Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Guess what? If you don't get to ride a horse now, you have to ride a horse then. I hope I'm not still allergic. I won't be. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations. He weeped over the nations, and now he's striking them. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh yes, they were right. He was their king, 
But he was not coming to conquer the nations then. He was coming to conquer sin and death. But when he comes back, he's going to show the nations too that sin and death was no big deal. How long do you think you're going to last against me, buckaroo? But he's the king of Israel. They wanted an earthly king, and you know what? They would be very disappointed, and so much so that they would turn him over to be killed the following week and ask for a murderer to be released instead. And people being freed from sin and death and judgment is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. It wouldn't come with putting up the signs and the banners. It would start by putting up the cross. Zechariah 9.9 is fulfilled here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is prophecy fulfilled. I'm sure other people rode donkey into Jerusalem, but no one else was shouted Hosanna in this way. No one else a week later would bring salvation. The disciples didn't get it at first, and we see that this is a very recurring theme before Pentecost. Disciples don't understand the spiritual things until they have the Spirit of God. But when Jesus was glorified, you know, it says that when he was glorified, does that mean the Sunday? No, it means when he rose from the dead, when he was revealed for who he is. That this was just the beginning of the revelation, but it wasn't. Obviously, you'll see his true glory. His true glory wasn't this one Sunday afternoon riding in. It's on that last one when he rides in. You know, uh, there were palm branches and temporary political gain, but that's no match for true worship and eternal kingdom of God. Man on a donkey versus God on the throne. These people bore witness that the, the people were having conversations. Uh, that Jesus was more than a political president. He rose Lazarus from the dead, that he was the real king of Israel, that he was the fulfillment that they'd always wanted. God was ruling over Israel. Israel demanded a king. God said, I'm already your king, but this is what you really want. Let me show you. And God allows them to have a king. And we know that most of the kings were bad and some were good. But you know what? God still uses that and says, you know what? I'm going to give myself back to you as your very king who comes that day and yet a week later they would say we have no king but Caesar it's interesting that at the end the Pharisees say they've accomplished nothing we haven't done anything they're praising him today they're throwing stuff at him the world has gone after him oh if only the world had truly gone after him but they couldn't fight the truth they couldn't hang on to it Jesus would slip through their fingers. Psalm 127 one says, A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. That unless God is the one doing all the work, whatever you and I will do it, whatever you and I will do, will slip away. And King Solomon knew that all his earthly strength, his influence, his works, that if God hadn't given him the wisdom, it was all vanity. It was all a temporary kingdom of palm branches. When we try and make ourselves better, not that there's anything wrong with working out or eating right or trying to improve your life in some way. But in a sense, without Jesus, it's vanity. One day it'll fade. One day you'll forget it. One day you won't be able to lift those weights. A 12-step program. 
12 steps to where? To always calling yourself an addict? How about one step to Jesus and you won't be an addict anymore? Don't live under the weight and the stigma of that because it will drag you down. Or being a good person or doing good works, trying to outweigh your sin and bad things with good things. It's not going to work. How many good things is it going to take to erase a murder? How many good things is it going to take to fix a marriage? How many good things is it going to take to repay someone? Even if they get it back, they've still been ripped off. People get sued in civil court all the time and for their personal suffering, but it doesn't erase it. Still have memories and they're scarred from it. But you know what forgiveness does? Karma, tolerance, political correctness? It's vanity. All have no eternal value. Even if they have some earthly gain, it's only temporary. And these physical principles, when applied to our spiritual life, only lead to eternal death. If we rely on anything but the cross to make us better, it's not going to benefit us eternally. So be selfish and want to be benefited eternally. And then let God change you <laughs> and realize that it's more than that. But even when done in Jesus' name, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King of Israel. It's got to be true worship. It's got to be worshiping Jesus for who He is and not what we want Him to be. Let Him take us where He wants us to go and not where we want Him to go. God wants to be the King of each of us individually and ride into our hearts to raise us from the dead, to call our names like He did the Lazarus, to make us living proof of God's power over sin and death. He doesn't want to clean you up and straighten you and get you to fly right. He wants to raise you from the dead and make you a spectacle to all those who look at you. And maybe you will straighten up and fly right. <laughs> maybe you will have a life that's in order. People go, wow, something about you. Yeah, there's something about me. It's Jesus. And I'm not dead anymore. Sometimes I feel like I, I'm dying. Sometimes I feel like I'm old. And that's true. But I know that spiritually I'm not dead anymore. And he knew that it would take way more than a triumphant entry into Jerusalem on a little donkey that it was going to take a violent, horrific death, a walk up the Via Dolorosa with a cross on his back and a crown of thorns on his head. It would take a burial in a tomb that wasn't his and a resurrection three days later. It took all of that. All of the scripture had to be fulfilled by the word of God, not just some of it. All of the bold claims of the Bible have to be true, not just some of them. And will we worship Him for who He is in totality? Will we just say, oh, He didn't say these things, or that's not what He meant, or the Old Testament says this, but the New Testament says this, or those words never came out of Jesus' mouth. Well, you know what? The whole Bible is Him. And everything He says is in line with the whole Bible, and the whole Bible is in line with Him. So you can't pick and choose. If you choose any other form of Jesus than what the Bible says in its entirety, you're not believing in Jesus. You're not going to heaven. Even if your church says the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ on it, it's not the same Jesus. Will we remain dead in the grave 
of our decisions, of our efforts, of our works, of our own belief even, of our faith, that's limited? Or we let Him raise us up to sit at His table, to be resurrected, to be alive, to be warm, to be eating, to be something to behold in the image of Him. In John 11, 25-26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This morning, if you're a believer or not, consider, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe what the Bible says it says about people coming back to life? When someone's sick, are you willing to get down and lay on them and pray for them that they might come back to life? Maybe they won't. But if God said it in the Bible, and God did it to Lazarus, and God raised Jesus from the dead, He certainly can raise you and I from the dead. Even if our life on earth ends, know that you can have a spiritual life that has risen from the dead. Even if you feel like your body is dying, and it may be, you can still have resurrected life. Even if you have three years left to live or a month left to live, the doctors say, you can be raised to life even today. And you, your body may die, but your spirit will live on. And God, we pray that you would uh, just uh, live on and God, help us cling to your resurrection and God, choose it and believe it for ourselves that others might come to it, that God, you might bring new life and resurrection to us and to others around us and help us be that spectacle of you and not of good works necessarily for themselves, that others would see those good works, but that truly they would see you living in us. We love you, God. Come back soon. We can't wait to see you riding on that white horse and riding with you. In Jesus' name, amen.